Hi and welcome back to the show. This is your host Brett Hawes and we're back with another episode. Uh, just a quick bit of housekeeping, um, really just musings at this point. But uh, if I've connected with you recently in on my Calgary trip or at the CHFA, um, I am. It was great to meet you. First of all, um, I had a really good time uh, traveling. It was pretty intense as well. It was go go go, but uh, good times on tour with Mega Food. And, uh, of course, connecting with you um, out in Edmonton, Calgary, and beyond. Uh, for those of you who I connected with um, at the Digestive Health Masterclass, that was my practitioner masterclass, which happened um, this past weekend. Uh, really fantastic turnout. Uh, the feedback that I have got back from that has been great so far. And uh, I look forward to doing that again at some point in the near future. So uh, thank you for those who made it out. And for those of you who were registered and who are living elsewhere, uh, the U.S., um, other parts of Canada, uh, I look forward to connecting with you online in our membership platform uh, for practitioners. Um, in other news, uh, it was a pretty, uh, what's the word? I guess a distressing week for some people. Uh, there was a decision by Toronto City Council to enforce mandatory vaccinations. Um, I think I actually want to do a special on that uh, alone and, and by myself because I have a lot of thoughts and a lot of insight on that. Um, but simply to say this, the, you know, the idea of mandatory vaccinations where there are known risks, known side effects where we do not have fail-safe measures, especially here in Canada, we don't have an adequate reporting system. We don't have a compensation program. The manufacturers have zero liability. A lot of uh, cards that are essentially stacked against um, those that are not in favor. All right. Um, so I'm not going to get too far into it. Suffice to say this, that the Toronto City Council voted for mandatory vaccinations. They voted for a reporting system that was better. We'll wait to see what that looks like. They also voted for a compensation program, which, of course, acknowledges that right out the gate there are risks. Otherwise, we wouldn't need a compensation program. But here's the thing. A lot of us are very panicked. A lot of us are concerned. Um, but my understanding is that the city has to take that to the province because healthcare is provincially regulated here in Canada. And last I heard, at time of this recording, the province of Ontario was not interested in pushing mandatory vaccinations forward. So in other words, this is a city mandate. This has been voted on by city council, by the Toronto Board of Health. But the province has to approve this, which is um, obviously for those of us that are not in favor or for those, you know, who would like to have the option, the choice, uh, this is obviously a good, uh, good news. Uh, that said, um, one has to wonder how long it might take before the province does, does decide to adopt this, right? Because obviously there's mounting pressure from media um, and from many other different angles. So I'm going to leave that alone. Um, I don't want to venture too far into it. Um, let's get on to today's show. My guest today is Dr. Sean Mirovici, who is a naturopathic doctor based here in Toronto. And essentially, we cover an absolutely astounding amount of ground uh, with regards to cannabis. So cannabis, CBD. You know, I did a podcast before with Todd Delato, and we spoke a lot more about regulatory things. We spoke a bit more about extraction and the actual plant itself. And um, what I loved about my discussion with Sean is that we spoke a lot more about the medical application and the intended use and how to sort of navigate things like dosaging, what strains, uh, what ratios, um, you know, are you looking at broad spectrum or going very narrow? And, you know, obviously our discussion is a very uh, dense and interesting discussion, um, but nonetheless, there are still questions that are unanswered and the research is still moving forward at a galloping pace. So, um, I hope that you learned something today because there's a lot of confusion out there with regards to 
um, you know, quote unquote, who has the best CBD, which, you know, in my mind, um, it's not a very good question to ask because it's not about who has the best CBD as a product. It is actually about who has the best CBD for me, for my condition. What receptor sites does that bind to? What are these receptor sites associated with? Um, what are the big ticket health areas? You know, so things like epilepsy, uh, pain, inflammation, sleep. So we unpack all of this on today's show, and uh, I think you will find it fascinating. Um, CBD is obviously such a hot-button topic today, so hopefully this episode will enlighten you and help you to uh, essentially navigate this topic um, better for yourself, your family, and your friends. Um, As always, if you enjoyed today's show, please consider subscribing, uh, leaving a review, And of course, sharing this with your friends, family and community. Now, some of you have asked me, interestingly enough, why leave a review? And the reason why you leave a review and subscribe is to help the show essentially rank in platforms like iTunes. Okay, so that I can get some eyeballs on here because I don't have any advertising or anything like that or any sponsors. This is me. This is a labor of love. So by subscribing, reviewing and sharing, you essentially help to get more ears on the podcast. So thanks for tuning in. And I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Here is Dr. Sean Mirovici. Hey, Sean, welcome to the show. Thanks for stopping by. Thanks for having me. It's my pleasure. Yeah, so off air, I mean, just getting to know you a little bit and and getting some of the feedback from the workshop that you've done. Um, Some of my colleagues have taken that workshop and, and some really good feedback that's come out of that. And that's kind of what spawned me or prompted me to get you on the show because I've really been looking, you know, I did a podcast before on, on cannabis uh, as a very, very broad topic. And we sort of spoke a little bit more about extraction methods and, you know, different, you know, cannabidiols and stuff like that. But Mm -hmm. just to sort of preface our discussion today, I mean, you and I both get slammed with emails every day about what is the best product out there. This is the health condition I'm dealing with. And, and you just sort of go down these rabbit holes. And, and that is really where I want to focus um, our attention today. But before we get into it, yeah. um, perhaps give us a little bit of your background. You know, what do you specialize in? How did you get into um, really becoming an expert on, on this topic? Sure, absolutely. Uh, so I'm a naturopathic doctor and uh, I've been in clinical practice for uh, about 10 years now. And uh, pretty early on in my career, I decided to focus in uh, neurological disease. So um, I started working at a clinic that specializes in neurological rehabilitation. And so um, naturally, we were seeing a lot of uh, multiple sclerosis, a lot of um, traumatic injuries like traumatic brain injury, spinal cord injury, and various other neurological conditions. And uh, one main feature of all those conditions was there's uh, usually a pain component. And so uh, naturally did a lot of pain management with these patients, you know, trying different natural anti-inflammatories, a lot of acupuncture, things like that. And um, a lot of these patients were on, uh, you know, standard pain uh, management medications like opiates. And uh, I started seeing a trend probably um, about four years ago that uh, more and more pat- of my patients were starting to experiment with cannabis, uh, trying it out. So, uh, you know, that piqued my interest, um, started doing some more research and listening to my patients' stories with, with it. Um, and then took some more clinical advancement uh, courses. And uh, that's sort of organically how I started to become a quote-unquote expert in the space. Mm -hmm. Um, It happened to, uh, there was a cannabis licensing clinic literally about five minutes from the clinic I was working at. So uh, I started developing a little bit of a relationship with them and uh, started referring a lot of my patients over to them. Uh, to get their um, license. And this was obviously before it was uh, legalized recreationally. And so really at the peak of it, I was doing about five referrals a week um, to this cannabis licensing clinic for patients. And, uh, and the results were just, you know, dramatic. And uh, it really took me by surprise. You know, here I had patients where I was trying out, you know, different natural anti-inflammatories like curcumin and, um, you know, boswellia, the 
the main ones that uh, that you would know about. Um, and, uh, you know, that's what I was doing for a while, and it was sort of hit or miss. And then, you know, patients started taking, like, CBD, and uh, results would happen within a week. So uh, I was just kind of really into it at that point. And uh, that's that's really how I started focusing in this space of cannabis education. Awesome. And uh, yeah, we're definitely going to circle back to a few points that you touched on there. But I think just for our listeners, um, in terms of, of a good journey and segue into the more granular, um, complex side of things, let's yeah. just sort of start from ground zero. And um, when you talk about uh, cannabis, like, first of all, what's the difference between hemp and cannabis? Like, or is there a difference at all? Uh, there's not really a difference. It's all the same species, cannabis uh, sativa. And uh, so basically, um, it's, it's really a technicality that would uh, differentiate what we know as cannabis and something like hemp. Uh, whereas, you know, hemp is uh, basically has to be standardized to containing less than 0.03% THC. And it's grown more for its fibrous content, and um, it's more in, in basically the chemical constituents that make up that variety and how it's grown. But it, everything's all the same species. Uh, and what really the differences are how it's grown, its genetic history, um, its, its chemical makeup. Uh, so it's almost like breeding dogs or animals. Um, mm -hmm. You know, over time, you can make a dog look a certain way, um, but all dogs are essentially the same species. So it's the same with cannabis. You know, over time, different strains have been bred for different reasons, but uh, fundamentally, they're all the same. It's all the same species. Right. And then, of course, you know, you, you, from there, we, you know, I love the analogy of, of breeding dogs because I think it's really fitting. But from there, you start getting into different strains and different cultivars and stuff like that. But, That's right. um, you know, obviously the big strains are, are indica and sativa as the sort of parent strains, right? Yeah. What, yeah. What, are the, what are the big differences between the indicas and the sativas? Um, so uh, a major difference is uh, you can go back to where those strains sort of originated and um, the Indicas uh, originated more from uh, like northern Afghanistan and um, Pakistan, around that area of the world. And the Sativas were more sort of equatorial um, strains like South Africa, things like that. Uh, so uh, just because of where they were grown, uh, they took on different characteristics. So when you look at a sativa plant versus an indica plant, they look very different. So a sativa plant will tend to be a taller plant with thinner leaves, um, and an indica plant's more like a low, bushier plant with more broader leaves. And uh, when you look at the uh, chemical makeup, indicas tend to be a bit stronger, a little bit more resiny, and they have a different terpene profile. Um, I guess we'll probably get into that. Yeah. Uh, and uh, when you sort of, as a general summary, indicas have been classically characterized by more of a body effect, uh, a body high, and um, uh, used more for uh, nighttime and sleep and relaxation, where indicas classically have more of this sort of cerebral effect, and they're used more for uplifting mood, promoting creativity, um, and, uh, and more daytime use because they tend to be less sedating than the, than the indicas. So, so that, that's the sativas, right? Are a little bit more uppity. Um, yeah. Yeah. A little bit, yeah, exactly. A little bit more uppity. Okay. And that's uh, when you say cerebral, I mean, is, is this the stuff that kind of gets you really stoned? Yeah, uh, I would say so. Like, um, yeah, when you think of uh, kind of the uh, psychedelic effects of right. cannabis, uh, I would pin that a, a little bit more on the sativa side, whereas the indica side is more like this sort of body. You, you hear about this term couch lock, which is basically a deep relaxation where you really don't want to get up off the couch. That's more the indica style. Um, and the sativas, yeah, tend to be more that sort of psychedelic experience. Okay. And now there is a third major strain as well, right? Um, there's ruderalis, um, which is uh, sort of the wild type cannabis. Okay. Um, and uh, it's not used that much just because it is, it tends to be lower in the concentration of the cannabinoids, but it is kind of, 
Uh, it's that wild type, meaning that it's easier to grow, it grows faster. And what's really interesting about um, the wild type is that the ratio of THC to CBD in the ruderalis tends to be about equal, like a one-to-one. And that's where we see uh, research headed towards in terms of therapeutic effect that more and more products and strains are being grown to have this sort of one-to-one ratio of cannabinoids. So it seems like nature had it right in the first place. (laughs) Mm, Yeah, no doubt, right? I mean, isn't that always the case, right? (laughs) Yeah, that's right. That's right. So so one thing, I mean, you know, I know we'll get into the finer points in a second here, but um, a, a question that just popped into my head, and I know a lot of people always ask this, right? You know, THC um, versus CBD. I mean, those are the sort of the, the big um, phytochemicals, if you will, or, or phytocannabinoids, whatever we're going to call them. But, but right. what's the idea behind, you know, people are very concerned about actually getting high, right? So, if you know, if right. you take cannabis products, is there a way, you know, you mentioned earlier, uh, one-to-one ratio, you know, between uh-huh. THC and, and CBD. Now, THC is obviously what gives us more of that psychoactive high, um, whereas CBD doesn't have that. But yeah. do you find that people, you know, is there a way to actually get THC in you without getting high? Um, yeah, everyone's going to be a bit different in terms of the uh, amount of THC that they can consume without feeling high. Mm. Uh, but, uh, as a general rule of thumb, if you keep THC quite low and CBD quite high, uh, there's more of a chance that you will not feel so many of the effects of THC. And of course there are strains out there and and oils out there that are pretty much have no THC content. Mm -hmm. Um, so those would not produce those, um, those THC related effects, Uh, But again, it's really tough to say because you'll have patients where they'll take like one or two milligrams of THC and and feel really high. And then other patients would need something like, you know, 10 to 20 milligrams of THC to feel really high. So everyone's chemistry is going to be different. Um, I, you know, I usually tell patients who are new to cannabis um, depending on what we're going for, but, um, I'll usually recommend a little bit of THC in the mix and then we'll just start really slow and, uh, and low in terms of dose and then work it up to where a patient feels like they're comfortable and their symptoms are being treated, but they're not too, uh, high or inebriated. So yeah, you kind of have to take it slow. And the reason why I generally more more times than not recommend a bit of THC in there is um, the synergism that happens between the different cannabinoids. So they, they seem to help each other work better and you really don't need much THC in the mix to get a little bit of that synergism going. Um, so well, more often than not, I will uh, recommend something with a bit of THC, but definitely if, if a patient does not want to be high and they need to take something during the daytime and they're working, uh, we'll start with something that's just pure CBD with no THC in it. Mm. I think, um, you know, because I, I, let, let's come back to THC, CBD, and the terpenes and all of these constituents, because I think just from a logical standpoint, um, a, a nec- the, the next sort of good place to start, if you will, would probably be for people to understand um, you know, when we talk about the endocannabinoid system, so this endogenous or the, our innate production of cannabinoids and then the receptor sites, I think if we can sort of like unpack that a little bit and then come back to THC, CBD, terpenes and sort of plug that in to where exactly this is going to work in the body. So how would you describe the endocannabinoid system? What is it? What does it do? How does it work? So it's basically a regulatory system in the body. Um, So we have receptors for cannabinoids in almost every single tissue of the body, but they do tend to be more densely located in our central nervous system and in parts of the immune system too. And uh, the whole purpose of this is sort of a harm reduction pathway. Uh, So endocannabinoids and the endocannabinoid system are kind of like the sprinkler system. Uh, in a building, where if uh, if things get too wild or too heated in terms of like signals happening and overexcitability, that's when the endocannabinoid system kicks in to kind of cool things down, put out the fire, 
and uh, help regulate um, these sort of excitable signals. And so that's, that's where it all stems from. And it's a very important system in that sense. Um, you know, it was uh, one paper I was reading was suggesting that 70% of our neurotransmitters are actually aimed at reducing excitability or kind of quenching down uh, signal transduction. So obviously it's, it's, a, it's a very important thing. And, and we've seen that, uh, uh, for instance, in a head injury, that a lot of the, the effects after a head injury are not necessarily because of the, the, the impact itself, but what happens in the body after that impact with inflammation and uh, the immune system being sequestered into the site. And that, that whole excitability of repair and, and, and all that happening can actually produce some harmful effects like scarring, and, uh, and chronic inflammation if, it, if it's not under control. And so uh, there was actually a study where they gave things like CBD right after a head injury, and that helped in terms of the healing process of the head injury compared to the controls they did better afterwards. So this, this system is in our body to really help regulate uh, trauma and, and excitability and sort of bring everything into uh into balance and homeostasis hmm. so would you say that this works on on a sort of negative feedback loop where we're, we're pr yeah. producing them and then we stop producing them for a while kind of like hormones yeah so it, it is it's um i believe the word is um a retrograde um something retrograde uh, inhibition where basically, uh, so you'll have a signal happening at a neuron, and then it's actually at the postsynapse. So after where the signal actually goes to, that's where the endocannabinoids are released. So it's it's a it's a feedback loop, just like you said, uh, that that helps to kind of quench that signal down after the signal's already started. And have, have we identified in the body, you know, this has been a burning question of mine forever. Have mm -hmm. we identified what are there different types of endocannabinoids that we produce? Like, do we have mm -hmm. some kind of testing or, or, or do we just blanket statement, you know, everything under one roof? Yeah, yeah, no, definitely. So uh, since the 1960s, when they really isolated THC, that's when they discovered, oh, there's this whole system in our body where, where these cannabinoids are acting. And so uh, that's basically the discovery of THC led to the discovery of our endocannabinoid system and subsequently the discovery of endocannabinoids. So the two big ones that we know about are uh, anandamide and 2-AG. Now, they're, they're discovering more and more, but those ones we know about fairly well. So um, there's two endocannabinoids, and those really are the, the chemical compounds that regulate this whole system. Um, and it's really interesting how they all work, and basically they have to be broken down eventually, and, and that's sort of where CBD comes into. Um, so CBD is funny. It doesn't really act on the cannabinoid receptors itself, how it exerts its effect is um, inhibiting the breakdown of our own endocannabinoids. So interesting. Yeah. So it actually helps uh, increase endocannabinoid um, signaling. Uh, it doesn't huh. act on the receptors itself. Wow. Yeah, that is really interesting because, you know, um, I, I always was under the impression, and, and perhaps you can elaborate on this, that... Mm -hmm. You know, in a very rudimentary sense, we we produce all of these different endocannabinoids in our body. They dock to these different receptor sites, and you know, if you're producing, um, let's just say, for argument's sake, we have a hundred receptor sites, and I produce a hundred endocannabinoid molecules. Uh, mm -hmm. That hundred binds to the hundred receptors, and we're all good. Everything is homeostasis. But if yeah. we're underproducing whatever endocannabinoids in our body, and let's say we only produce eighty and that binds to 80 of our 100 receptors, we're now left with 20 receptors that are, are sort of starving, so to speak. And mm -hmm. my impression was always that, you know, adding external um, cannabinoids sort of like filled the gap, so to speak. I mean, mm -hmm. I'm sort of now understanding and speaking to you that maybe that's a little bit too oversimplified and not quite complete. 
Yeah, well, that seems to be the case with the human body is uh, <laughs> the more we find out, the less we, we realize we actually know. Um, I mean, so you're partially right, like THC does have a big affinity for, um, for cannabinoid receptors. So it does kind of lock and key stimulate that receptor. But CBD, for one, doesn't seem to do that so much. And I'm sure that we'll find out uh, with other cannabinoids that, um, you know, some uh, have, a, have a big affinity for these receptor sites and some really w work in a different way completely. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, uh, so yeah, you're partially right. And to go even a little bit further down the rabbit hole, uh, CBD, uh, it does sort of act on cannabinoid receptors, but in a different way. So a lot of receptors have multiple binding sites and uh, the cannabinoid receptor has sort of this allosteric site, which is not the main site, but a different site. And we've seen that CBD can actually bind to that sort of secondary site. And, and what happens uh, when, um, when substances bind, bind to these allosteric sites is they change the three-dimensional shape of the receptor slightly. And so we think that that change in shape actually helps THC work um, longer and uh, the, the signal from the THC is, is not as strong when, when you have CBD in the mix. And so that helps mitigate a lot of the negative side effects from THC or high THC that people experience like um, nausea, headaches, paranoia, anxiety, that, that sort of thing. So that change in shape of the receptor that CBD's um, able to confer uh, has some really interesting effects um, uh, in terms of how THC is, is uh, presented to the body. So there's, yeah, there's all this stuff working together and we're just sort of at the tip of the iceberg and understanding how it all works. Yeah, and I, I I truly feel that. I mean, that's you know again one of the uh, main reasons why I wanted to get you on here because I feel like every time I start going back and looking at cannabis, there's just more research. There's now you know I've I've read some books on the matter. Um, mm -hmm. There's medical doctors using it. Uh, the history of cannabis is interesting in terms of the medicinal use. I mean, going sure. back to Ayurvedic medicine into traditional Chinese medicine yeah. uh, long before the discovery of, of the endocannabinoid system. So yeah. it, it is all very fascinating. Um, just to move us along, you know, we keep talking about receptor sites. And I think for our listeners, um, you know, before I get into the receptor sites, just one last question. Do we have uh, any sort of testing to evaluate our own endocannabinoid production at this point? Well, um, yes and no. Uh, <laughs> uh, not in terms of like looking at how they interact with our receptors. Um, there might be some ways of testing that, but those are really not available to the public just yet. It's more for yeah. research purposes. What we do have is... Um, well, actually, going back to research, what they've shown in certain uh, uh, types of conditions like migraine, for instance, uh, there's some research where they'll, they're actually testing the spinal fluid of migraine sufferers in comparison to just healthy controls. And they've been able to see that there are, it's, there's less concentration of some of these endocannabinoids like anandamide. So, so that, that does exist. Now, uh, you know, no one's lining up to get their spinal fluid tested. <laughs> Seriously. <laughs> uh, so, so that's still a research thing. But what is happening, what I've seen a few startup companies do is um, they're doing some genetic testing. And mm -hmm. that's more of like uh, how you metabolize uh, cannabinoids. So much like other drugs, uh, cannabinoids need to be metabolized by the liver. And so you can genetically be a very fast metabolizer or a slower metabolizer. And that will kind of translate to how, uh, how much cannabinoids um, are going to be needed for you to have like a, a therapeutic effect. So, and it, it would also determine, you know, how much you should be taking for your first dose and those sort of things. So there's some companies that are starting to come out with these genetic tests to determine that. Um, it's like almost... Uh, you, you've heard of 23andMe, I'm assuming. Uh, so it's almost like taking a little part out of the 23andMe test that's more relevant to uh, cannabis uh, consumption mm -hmm. and, um, 
and basically you, you get your saliva tested and they'll tell you, you know, according to how you metabolize things, you know, whether, uh, you know, cannabis is going to be sort of like a strong thing for you, or you can consume quite a bit of cannabis without getting effects. So there's, there's some tests that are coming out, um, for the public that might be able to guide them a little bit more specifically in terms of how to use cannabis. Yeah. And I think that's really cool. I mean, that's something I've been looking into recently is, you know, pharmacogenomics and pharmacokinetics and stuff like that, which is, you know, obviously um, that's becoming quite a, quite a, I don't want to say hot button, but it's becoming more commonplace in the medical system for, for, for drug use, you know, so for yeah. prescription meds yeah. and what dosages and how are the meds going to interact with each other, et cetera, et cetera. So I do, yeah. you know, I, I think that's very valuable for people because, you know, um, just sidebar, but I think, you know, relevant is, you know, you got people now that are going to festivals and, and eating edibles and right. landing up in hospital because, yeah. you know, their, their buddy took one gummy and they took one gummy and, you know, one person's fine and the next person's in hospital. So yeah. I think that um, having these pharmacogenomic and genetic testing, I think is, is going to be very, very useful for people, especially since, you know, what I'm hearing from you is we don't really have a way to let's do a blood test and see you know, what, what are your levels like? You know what I mean? Because I don't, I don't think we really have a, a benchmark or apps or good absolute values or ranges um, at this moment in time. So hopefully, I mean, you know, painting a blue sky, hopefully we can get to a point where we can establish good ranges um, mm -hmm. in terms of, of blood or saliva or something, and then yeah. match that with the appropriate genetic testing to really sort of dial into, um, what people need, right? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. We do know we, we have some, uh, for CBD, we're starting to see some real trends come out of what dosages seem to be therapeutic. Uh, but THC tends to still be a mystery. So uh, with CBD, uh, it tends, to, we, we're starting to see like somewhere around the 20 milligram mark is, is where a lot of studies are, um, are, are starting to uh, use in terms of dosages. Uh, so we do, we're starting to get a little bit of information, but as you said, yeah, we still, it's still very much an art form in terms of, um, uh, dosing cannabis because it really depends on multiple factors like a person's endocannabinoid tone. And, you know, there still isn't a great way to test what that tone is. Mm -hmm. Uh, so yeah, you know, we'll, we'll, in the coming years, we'll definitely see some some interesting things come out in terms of how we can figure out how to how to dose people a little bit more accurately. Yeah, cool. Um, so just to sort of um, expand a little bit here, you know, we I mentioned it earlier, and I, I want to come back to it. Is you know we keep talking about receptor sites, receptor sites, and you know we've got these two main receptors in the body for cannabinoids we've got mm. cb1 and cb2 and yeah. i think that's where most of the research is sort of pointed to i i believe that there are others but they're not very well researched is that correct yeah that's correct so yeah cb the cannabinoid receptor 3 has been discovered but we still don't really understand how it all works uh, so right now, yeah, CB1, CB2, those are our two main cannabinoid receptors. Uh, the cannabinoid receptor one tends to be more densely located in the central nervous system. So like the brain and spinal cord, whereas the cannabinoid receptor two tends to be more in like the peripheral tissues, organ systems, um, lymphatic tissue, that sort of thing. Mm. And now do we know, um, just to sort of, again, get a little bit more granular here. So we've got THC, we've got CBD. Those are the sort of real, the, the most studied and the most prevalent um, compounds in cannabis. Do yeah. we know, like does CB1 and CB2, do they have preferences for THC versus CBD versus terpenes and some of these other uh, compounds? Um not really. I mean, they'll act at both receptor sites and it's not so um, uh, black and white. Like you will have CB2 receptors in the central nervous system and you will have CB1 receptors in the peripheral. Uh, but, you know, as sort of uh, to simplify things, that's uh, like CB1 tends to be more in one place, CB2 in another place. Um, we know that uh, one cannabinoid, cannabinol, so CBN, seems to act more at the CB2 receptor than the CB1 or more of an affinity for that. But all cannabinoids will act at both receptors. 
um, some might have a more affinity towards one or the other. Uh, but yeah, you can't really say black and white that, you know, this cannabinoid only acts at this receptor and this one only acts at that receptor. Uh, we, we can't really say that for certain at this point. Got it. No, that makes, and that makes sense. I mean, especially when you're dealing, you, you know, we'll talk about uh, extraction a little bit, I think, because I think it's important um, relative to our discussion. But yeah, you yeah. know, when you're dealing with something that's broad spectrum, that has so many different phytocompounds in it, I mean, yeah. and, and then you, you map that onto something as complex as an endocannabinoid system. I mean, yeah, it's anyone's guess as to what type of response you're going to get. Um, right. And, and, the interplay of the cannabinoids and the terpenes will actually delineate, you know, is, uh, are these cannabinoids going to cross into your, you know, central nervous system better? Like for instance, one terpene beta myrcene, which is present in all types of cannabis, but very much so in the indica strains, uh, that actually helps THC cross the blood brain barrier better. Um, so you get a stronger effect with, uh, with, with high levels of that. And then another really important terpene in all types of cannabis called karyophylline uh, is itself a cannabinoid. It acts at the cannabinoid receptors too. So there's all this wild interplay of the def- different uh, chemical components within cannabis and how it's, how it's helping certain cannabinoids work and how it's affecting our body and our biology. Mm. So, so I think on that point, um, perhaps elaborate a little bit more if, if you, if you can, or if you want to, um, you know, again, we speak about CBD, we spoke about THC, um, CBN and some of these terpenes, Mm -hmm. but are are there any other sort of compounds within cannabis that you feel you want to sort of bring up and chat about a little bit more? Well, the main ones that I always like to uh, educate groups on are uh, cannabinoids. So like your THC, your CBD, CBN, THCV, there's a few key players basically there. And then another grouping will be the terpenes. So those are like the essential oils of cannabis, um, what gives it its aroma. And those also have therapeutic value as we uh, all know from just like aromatherapy and things like that. Like, um, for instance, one uh, terpene that you'll find in um, more of the sativa varieties, uh, limonene, uh, that's been shown to help with depression just by infusing it into the air in depression, uh, depressed patients. So I always thought it was interesting that um, here you have sativas, which are classically more thought of as uplifting mood. And then when you look at the chemical constituents that are common throughout sativas, you see that they tend to have these higher levels of things like limonene. And so, you know, what we often think about as an effect from just the cannabinoids might actually be an effect from cannabinoids and terpenes and how they play together. And then Mm. a third grouping, which I'm just starting to kind of delve into the research of, and it hasn't been a main focus of research yet for cannabis, is the flavonoids. And, uh, you know, we uh, as, um, you know, holistic nutritionists, naturopathic doctors, we're always researching and using flavonoids for their great anti-inflammatory components, like, uh, you know, a big one being um, the flavonoids in in green tea, for example, EGCG. Uh, so we're, we're starting to discover that, you know, cannabis is not an exception. It's full of flavonoids too. And uh, primarily what we know now is that these flavonoids have anti-inflammatory uh, effects to them. But I'm sure there's, there's other effects from these flavonoids. And we still have only discovered about 20 of them within cannabis. So that's a very new field too. So when, when I talk about the... Um, chemical components of cannabis, I usually go through cannabinoids for the bulk of it, terpenes would be next, and then flavonoids. Right. And of course, we know, I mean, a myriad of other effects uh, from the the terpenes and the flavonoids as well, right? But um, a couple of questions for you, you know, from an extraction standpoint and a production standpoint, um, you know, first point is, you know, are, are manufacturers or producers, are they sort of like really drilling down into the flavonoids and the terpenes and, and using different types of extraction to pull out certain things? Or do you find that people are just doing very broad spectrum extractions in the hopes of just trying to capture everything? So that's question one. And then question two is, 
um, you know, the, the method of, uh, of getting it into your body, you know, so vaping versus smoking versus oil and so on. What does that do to these compounds? Absolutely. Okay. So to answer your first question, um, so yeah, I would say that there's a lot of um, companies out there that are starting to um, work with how do we, you know, take out certain cannabinoids, even the more esoteric ones like CBG. Uh, THCV is a really interesting one from an um, appetite suppressant uh, perspective. Um, so yes, there are companies doing it. I don't say, I, I wouldn't say that, uh, in terms of the recreational market right now, uh, that a lot of companies are focusing on these more sort of specific extractions. Uh, they seem to be focusing on what, what people know, which is THC and CBD. Yeah. But I think once the market kind of grows um, into a bit more of a maturity, uh, you'll start seeing like high CBG strains, uh, you know, high CBN strains. So we'll get more of the specifics. Like I, I know, for instance, um, uh, there's a lot of companies that are working with, they're, they're basically just extracting cannabis terpenes and then adding them back into oils after the fact. Uh, so that's been really interesting because they can kind of like almost uh, manufacture their own kind of extract using which terpenes they want to include, which cannabinoids. Uh, so it's kind of interesting from that perspective. Uh, but I'm a purist. So I also like the fact that, um, you know, we're kind of we're, we're taking a strain that has been used for a specific purpose for a long time and then making a whole extraction of that strain. Um, that's, that's where I like it. And, and actually, if you look at some of this new research uh, coming out on how do we overcome this sort of bell-shaved curve response to cannabis, mm. um, those extractions that are um, not just, you know, they're not taking out just the THC and CBD in isolation, but they're kind of extracting the whole chemical component of the cannabis, those seem to have more of a linear trend in terms of dosing. So meaning that the higher you go with the dosing, the more therapeutic effect you see, where in the past, it's sort of you hit this kind of magic number, and that's where like the best therapeutic effect is. And then if you dose higher, you actually start losing some of that effect. Mm. So it looks like when we kind of take all the constituents uh, together, um, they act synergistically and we can get this kind of more linear trend in terms of therapeutic effect. So, um, I like, I like those companies that kind of keep everything in right from the natural flower. Uh, but you know, there's all kinds of interesting stuff people are doing with terpenes and cannabinoids. Um, we just haven't really seen it come to market yet. Yeah, yeah. No, and, and I've heard that. I mean, uh, obviously, being in this field as well, you know, speaking to yeah. people like yourself, um, you know, it's it's, it's interesting. Uh, and and I think that you know, just to circle right back to the beginning, you know, I think people out there are legitimately a little bit confused, and there's a lot of trial and error and a lot of experimentation at this point. But um, you know, as you've said, as things mature and uh, and and we move forward in the research. Um, I think that uh, I, I think we should um, see some good stuff coming up. Um, yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, and then to your point on uh, the method of consumption. So that is a really important point when dealing with cannabis education because you'll get very different effects from, let's say, smoking or vaporizing cannabis from consuming it as an edible. And uh, I, I think a lot of the population, especially the population new to cannabis, doesn't know that. And so that's where they can get into trouble and have a bad first experience with cannabis if they're not educated properly. And um, I'm all about uh, patients having a really positive first experience with cannabis. And that's how they will, um, you know, basically find it therapeutic for them. So. Uh, one big thing uh, in terms of smoking or vaporizing versus consuming an edible is actually uh, which cannabinoids you're getting and how they're metabolized in the body. So, so when you smoke cannabis, it's going into the lung and then directly into the bloodstream. And so you're not having much of a liver metabolizing effect on the cannabis. So you're getting a good deal of THC. 
uh, into the bloodstream, which, you know, has its, its effects and um, the effects are quite immediate. You know, the onset is within about 10 minutes of consumption and then it's cleared from the bloodstream relatively quickly, you know, over the course of about a, an hour to two hours, most of that THC is cleared out of the body or at least metabolized into its waste product. Now, when you consume uh, edible with, uh, with cannabis extract in it, the majority of that is going first through liver metabolism, which we call first pass effect. And uh, when you look at the blood um, samples of patients uh, who are smoking versus uh, consuming an edible, in the edible group, there's actually very little THC that you see in the bloodstream. Very little bit of it. What you actually see is this intermediate metabolite, THC um, or, or um, OOH THC which is a metabolite of THC. It's not exactly THC, but what it does have is anywhere from a 3 to 7% higher or more potent effect on the brain than THC does. Hmm. And, so, and it also crosses the blood-brain barrier much more easily than THC does. And so that's why um, edibles have this really sort of strong long-lasting effect because it, it takes a lot longer for that intermediate metabolite to be cleared from the body. And research is even further suggesting because we see when people smoke cannabis, we see this sort of um, uh, differentiation between the peak THC levels in someone's blood and when they're actually feeling the highest. Interesting. And so, the, the sensation of feeling, you know, really stoned or really high seems to correlate more with that intermediate metabolite, the THCOH, rather than THC itself. And so, um, yeah, we're thinking more and more that this, this, this effect, this cerebral effect, is more this intermediate um, cannabinoid than, or metabolite of THC than THC itself. So, you know, really different effects from consuming to, uh, to uh, vaporizing or smoking cannabis. And even amongst people, uh, so anyone who's smoked cannabis before or, or has smoked it um, often enough knows that um, for someone who's never smoked anything before, cigarettes or cannabis, they're not going to really know how to smoke properly. And so we can see from <laughs> From patient A to patient B, like saying patient A, first time smoking cannabis, you know, first time holding a joint in their hands, to patient B who's been smoking it for years and years and years, you're going to get up to a difference of like 60% in terms of absorption. So person A will have, you know, maybe only like 40%, whereas person B will have more towards the 100% absorption wow. of, of the cannabinoids. So there's a lot of things to consider um, in terms of... Uh, how it's consumed. Uh, so, you know, for instance, how this all relates to kind of reality and clinically relevant stuff is I usually recommend for someone who's using it medicinally, I'll recommend they take an oil or an edible consistently. So every day, and you can almost dose it the same way that you dose like Advil or Tylenol if we're thinking about pain relief, because when you consume uh, cannabis, the effects last anywhere from four to six hours, which is almost the exact same time frame of like Advil or, uh, or anti-inflammatory. Uh, so usually they'll, they'll take their oil like once or twice a day. And then I'll recommend uh, using a vaporizer for any breakthrough symptoms because it, it works so quickly, um, but it doesn't last very long. So the combination of the two uh, are, are sometimes very important when treating, treating certain symptoms. Hmm. And I, I think, you know, that, that was just a really great deep dive there because, uh, again, there's so much nuance and so many things that we haven't quite discovered yet. But um, very fascinating, very interesting to know that we are actually diving into this stuff a little bit more and the research is starting to come up, uh, which is great. Oh, um, yeah. yeah. So uh, just to move us along a little bit, you know, 
let's talk about health conditions and you know you've got people now like coconut oil where there's you know 1001 uses for coconut oil i I feel like now there's you know cbd will just cure everything right but um, but you and i both know that the evidence is is you know not quite there in most aspects of that discussion where do you feel like the strongest evidence exists in terms of health conditions that are sort of um really really treatable with uh, cannabis um, I would say in, in two main areas. So with uh, pain, for sure. And then a lot of these um, diagnoses of exclusion, we're, sort of, we're starting to see that cannabis or the endocannabinoid system might be involved as well. Uh, so, you know, very strong evidence in terms of uh, treating uh, chronic pain, like cancer pain, um, uh, pain in multiple sclerosis, uh, spasticity would be another uh, area. So some of the approved drugs on the market um, that contain cannabinoids are, are for spasticity, pain, and sometimes apul- uh, appetite uh, stimulation. So one of the first kind of conditions to be approved uh, for cannabis use was uh, cancer-related appetite uh, suppression and pain, as well as um, uh, HIV-positive patients for uh, for the for pain and, and appetite as well, and then for multiple sclerosis for uh, pain and spasticity. Now, uh, the research is starting to show that there's evidence to suggest um, cannabinoids will work well in some of these diagnoses of exclusion, uh, where we don't really know exactly what's going on, but we know there is a syndrome there, and it does seem to have some of these um, characteristic symptoms. Uh, one being fibromyalgia. So um, we know that it exists, and we know that it has these sort of characteristic symptoms, um, and it often has these comorbidities, meaning that it's not just the pain that someone's feeling, but they're also having gastrointestinal symptoms like disturbances, sleep problems. Um, so we, we see that time and time again. And another area would be uh, inflammatory and irritable bowel syndromes, um, mm. you know, especially with IBS. Again, we know that something's going on. We don't exactly know why it's going on, but, um, you know, you're having patients who are having bouts of diarrhea and constipation and a lot of uh, gastrointestinal stuff. So in, um, in those two areas, we see that the cannabinoids seem to be helping these people. And from that, we're able to extrapolate, hmm, maybe there's something going on with the endocannabinoid tone in these patients. And, uh, and we're starting to see evidence of that, uh, as I mentioned before, in, in the um, spinal fluid samples of these patients. And, and if you think about it, a lot of those conditions are characterized by some extent for excitability. So over, over excitability of pain, over excitability of colonic tone, um, you know, there's, there's a lot of neurotransmitters as well would probably have to be in there. Um, yeah, exactly. And so, um, you know, it's logical to say that, uh, they perhaps don't have a well-functioning endocannabinoid system that's helping to calm down this overexcitability. Um, and we even see like drugs like gabapentin being used a lot for these conditions where it's, it's, we're basically trying to uh, slow down um, you know, uh, neurotransmitters. And so uh, that's where we're seeing uh, cannabis really shine in helping this endocannabinoid tone, uh, you know, through things like CBD and THC. Um, You know, it's helping to relax the colon. It's helping to ease pain signaling. Um, So so those are definitely some areas. I I always think if I see a condition where I'm getting sort of an intuitive feeling that there's this overexcitability of receptors happening, that's where I start thinking about endocannabinoid tone and cannabis as a potential treatment. Mm. Yeah, fascinating. Now, um, question that often comes up, uh, you know, I had Todd Delato on on the show um, a while back now, probably a year ago, year and a half ago. Um, he's sort of well known as Mr. Hemp, uh, you know, the first guy to bring hemp products to market, et cetera, et cetera. And one thing that we spoke about is the idea of going on on a 
on a fast. All right. And what I mean by that is taking breaks, you know, so he's, he's a huge proponent of going on what he calls a ganja fast. So basically stop all products, stop smoking, stop ingesting, stop everything so that the endocannabinoid system actually gets a chance to self-regulate. And so I guess my, my question to you would be, is there a chance that people can become dependent on, on, on these products? And, um, second, you know, follow up to that is, uh, are there any sort of long-term negative implications uh, from from taking CBD uh, or cannabis products? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, cannabis dependence is is a real thing, um, and uh, a lot of people will become dependent on cannabis. Um, addiction, however, is not as common with cannabis than dependencies. And addiction is really defined that uh, basically it's. Um, the use of it is interfering with uh, with daily activities. Um, okay. So, uh, yeah, dependence does happen, and you know, f- uh, to a certain extent, um, your body will start upregulating uh, cannabinoid receptors in response to cannabis, and you can become tolerant uh, of of cannabis at certain doses. So you have to you know, use higher doses and so on and so forth. Um, so, so that's, that's a concern. Now, if someone is starting to consume cannabis under the age of, um, I believe it's 18, uh, they're about seven times more likely to develop a dependence on cannabis than someone who's over the age of 18. So Mm. you do have to weigh out the pros and cons with dealing with, um, you know, pediatric patients and, and patients into their early teens uh, because they do have a higher chance of becoming dependent. Now, it's my view that dependency is not always such a bad thing because if you think about it, if someone's suffering from uh, a condition that itself is interfering with their quality of life and activities of daily living, and then they start taking cannabis and they're feeling better, um, you know, so what if they're dependent <laughs> because it's working? Right. right. And uh, and cannabis is one of the safest drugs that that we know of. It's six times safer than aspirin. If you look at its toxicity profile, um, it's LD50, which is basically lethal dose in fifty percent of people. So, if you look at that, um, yeah, it's six times safer than aspirin. So it's it's a really safe thing to take. Um, so yeah, you know, people can, and, and dependency basically means, so if we stop, if we stop a person on cannabis, um, they have a chance of, uh, you know, some symptoms coming back like, uh, sleeplessness, uh, irritability, that sort of thing. And those symptoms will last anywhere from a week to two weeks. Um, so we know that the body has, uh, in some way kind of become a bit dependent on it. Um, but it will return to a baseline eventually. Mm. But, but again, if, if someone's dependent on uh, a, a medication that's helping them with their symptoms and their condition and it's safe, then, you know, I don't see such a problem with that. Right. And I, I tend to agree. I mean, obviously, there's a huge, uh, you know, the opioid crisis is a major, a major mm-hmm. thing. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, you know, be- better have people hooked on on cannabis products than uh, opioids, obviously. Yeah. So, I mean, I had a slide in my presentation that showed, um, you know, cannabis in relation to aspirin and then also in relation to heroin. And uh, it's about 60 times safer than heroin. And so I would say somewhere between aspirin and heroin is where you'll have opioids, probably closer to the heroin. So, uh, you know, cannabis is going to be, you know, in the tens of times safer than, than an opioid. Uh, so I'd rather someone be on cannabis than, than an opioid. Yeah, oh, 100%, 100%. Um, yeah. One, one thing, just since we're on the safety side of things, um, uh, you know, I'd, not to put you on the spot because I just sort of got wind of this, it's actually happening in the news right now, mm-hmm. is um, I believe there's, last time I checked, about 100 cases of people with severe lung damage from, mm-hmm. uh, from vaporizing. Uh, yeah, have you yeah. heard about that? Yeah, I've, I've heard about that. I'm kind of interested in it myself. Um, yeah. They haven't so figured I, out exactly what the what the the, the cause is, but yeah. my understanding, and this is just what I've heard, I have no idea, you know, or, or I can't verify this, but they're mm-hmm. talking about something used in the processing. So it's it's a synthetic vitamin E or something when it gets mm-hmm. heated up, right, is what's causing right. the problem. I, I don't know if you know anything more about that. 
Yeah. So, I mean, um, you know, a while back there was some uh, cases of this condition called popcorn lung, and that was linked to one of the flavorings in uh, a lot of vaporized, I guess, more of a nicotine replacement uh, substances. Right. Then uh, more recently, they were starting to see some uh, weird effects on the cardiovascular system um, with just vaporizing the carrier fluid, which is like a glycol solution or something mm -hmm. like that. Mm -hmm. um, they weren't really sure what long-term effect that was having, but it was constricting blood vessels in the lower limb. Uh, so... I, I don't think they're quite sure exactly what's going on. Um, I mean, we could theorize it for hours uh, on, on what's actually happening there. But, I, you know, I think when it comes down to it, um, the less amount of processing and synthetics you have in a vaporized substance, the better. And so I think a lot of the negative things have been coming out with these sort of pr more processed oils um, and, uh, and like uh, extracts. Uh, I don't think they've seen the same sort of uh, effect happen from just sort of vaporizing dry flour uh, where you're, there's no carrier oil or anything. It's basically just heating up the cannabis to a point where the cannabinoids start to evaporate. But, you know, it's not completely natural to be uh, taking anything into the lungs except for air. So, um, you know, I, I would imagine it's 100% safe. Uh, we're starting to see that there could be some issues. Um, they're not likely as bad for you as, um, you know, chronically smoking cannabis just um, as a joint or, or, or from a bong because of all the tar and things in that. But um, yeah, I, you, we're still kind of, we still don't quite know exactly why um, we're starting to see these cases of, uh, and you know, one thing with vaporizing that, that um, I've noticed and, and one potential pitfall is that when, when people are using a vaporizer, because of its ease of use, its discreteness, they tend to be using it a lot more often than they would, you know, just smoking a joint or, or a bong or that sort of thing. And so, it, it, you know, this excessive kind of stimulation or, um, you know, exposure of the lungs to this vaporized substance, that could be partially it as well. Um, because, yeah, the, the, the vaporizing communities, just vaporizing all day long. I, I mean, mm -hmm. I'm sure you've seen it too. It's just, you know, it's constantly on them. And like just walking down the street, they're vaporizing the whole way. Yeah. So, um, I, yeah, I don't think that's probably so healthy. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, Sean, it's been a fascinating discussion. I, it, I really learned a lot on, um, on this show. And, uh, for those of you listening out there, I'm sure, you know, you probably learned a ton that you didn't know before. So, um, you know, I just wanted to, to thank you for carving out some time and coming on the show today, Sean. Yeah, absolutely. And if in the future you ever want to sort of deep dive into one of the specific areas of uh, cannabis, I'd be happy to do that too. Great stuff. Yeah, awesome. And um, before I let you go, anything, you know, any last words or anything that we haven't touched on that you want to bring up? Uh, sure. Um, you know, when I do cannabis education, I really want uh, uh, the public or whoever I'm, I'm doing uh, the seminar four, to come away with the feeling that cannabis is not such a taboo thing anymore. So that's what I still see is that even though, uh, you know, it's legalized recreationally and, and medicinally, people are still really scared of it. Um, I want people to understand that, you know, uh, it's, it's a safe substance. Uh, you can try it, just you want to, um, you want to, be informed before you do. And you want to really start gently with cannabis to have that first good experience with it. Um, so don't be scared of it. Um, a lot of it's trial and error. So, you know, one strain might work better for you than a different strain. So feel free to experiment a little bit. Um, but uh, make yourself informed because you don't want to go out, uh, you know, with your first time and, and choosing a strain that's super high in THC or, you know, taking way too much of an edible and then have a really bad experience. So before, before you do try uh, and go out and, and give it a try, uh, just 
make yourself informed however way you choose to do it, whether it's through um, some internet educational sites or coming to a um, education seminar. Uh, just learn a little bit more about it. Awesome. I think those are, are smart words, um, good, good pointers for people. Um, so yeah, thanks, Sean. Where can people find out more about what you do? Um, any you know, social media, websites, anything you want to share with us? Um, I will put those in the show notes, of course. Sure. Uh, so my website is uh, www.drshawn.ca. So just D-R-S-H-A-W-N. And so you can see some uh, articles that, uh, that I put on there about cannabis and, and other sort of naturopathic related things. Uh, you'll get more about myself and, and my clinics uh, from that. And uh, I'm also on uh, Instagram, um, drshawn.ca. And uh, Facebook as well. Um, just look me up, Dr. Sean. And uh, yeah, so if you need any more information, a uh, good place to uh, direct yourself uh, towards would be the, the website. Awesome. All right. Thanks so much, Sean. And um, for those of you listening out there, as always, if you did enjoy today's episode, please consider uh, subscribing, leaving us a review, and more importantly than anything else, um, sharing this with your friends, your family, and your community, especially topics like this, where there's just so many gray areas and people are still very confused. Um, I think this is, is a really, really good episode to share with people and hopefully we'll sort of further your knowledge and your comfort, I, I guess the being comfortable with, um, using, uh, cannabis, uh, on, on your own self and with your family. Okay. So, um, thanks Sean. And, thanks, um, yeah, for those of you out there, uh, you have yourself a beautiful day wherever you are. 